Hi, this is Dr. Karen Horton from Johns Hopkins. In this talk, I'll be discussing artificial intelligence and radiology, what you need to know. This will be part one, and then we'll have a part two. In order to look to the future, we need to look to the past. And the x-ray was discovered by William Rankin on November 8, 1895 in Germany. And that's a picture of William Rankin. And the first x-ray ever taken to the right, that's his wife's hand. And you can see she has her wedding ring there. Even though the first x-ray was discovered in 1895, it was really only a few months later. It was actually February 1896 where we performed our first medical x-ray here at Johns Hopkins. And there's an um, image there of Hopkins in the early days. So a lot has changed since then. So if we look from 1896 to 2018, what has changed? Well, certainly equipment has changed. And if you look at, at that early image on the left, you can see that the early x-ray equipment was pretty crude and there wasn't a lot of safety measures versus examples of imaging machines from today. Things got a lot safer. Obviously, radiation dose has decreased and we know about radiation safety. Unfortunately, some of the early radiologists, including the first director of radiology here at Johns Hopkins, died from radiation-related complications. So we're much safer today. Even in my time, we went from film to digital images, which was a big advancement. Just the quality and the type of information you can get from imaging, imaging has improved. So you can see there on the left is just a lateral soft tissue film of the neck versus on the right, you can see that's actually CT scan with cinematic rendering. So it's amazing how much more information you can get from advances in radiology. We also are a lot busier than we were in the early days. I dug back in the archives and I could see in 1905, we did 1,451 exams. This year at Hopkins, actually next week, we will do our 1 millionth exam in this fiscal year. So clearly we're a lot busier. And also each exam has more images. And if we go back into the early days of CT, an exam would have 35 to 40 images, whereas today a CT exam has 3,000 to 4,000 images. So not only do we do more exams, we do um, more images per exam. Also in my day, we went from transcriptionist. So you can see there's an image from the early days of Hopkins. You can see the radiologist there. You can see the light box and the x-rays and the red arrows pointing to the transcriptionist. So in the early days they had the typist sitting right there as the radiologist discussed the imaging exam. And then in my day we went to voice recognition, so another advancement. But what hasn't changed since the early days of x-ray, since we did our first x-ray in 1896 and probably needs to change, what hasn't changed is how a radiologist interprets an image is fundamentally the same a hundred years later. So what a radiologist does is really based on visual acuity and search patterns. So a radiologist has to be able to spot the abnormality and a lot of it depends on training and experience because it's pattern recognition. You have to be able to look at an image and notice when something is wrong. The problem is that radiologists don't look at the entire image. And so there are plenty of studies out there showing eye tracking and that radiologist isn't even looking at all the information on the image. They're not looking at the corner or they're not looking at every inch of information on the image. And radiologists get distracted, the phone rings, 
somebody comes into the reading room, experience varies. It's all, the more you see, the better you are as a radiologist. And your experience, you might not see as much studies or you might not see certain diseases. So for example, here at Hopkins, we do a lot of pancreatic cancer imaging. So it's easy to get a lot of experience when every day you're seeing CTs or MR in patients with pancreatic cancer. Whereas you might work at a center where you only see a couple of cases a year. There's no way you're gonna be as good as a high volume center. And also the error rate is pretty high in radiologic imaging. So in some studies, it's as high as 30% error rate. Either the radiologist is not seeing the finding or is misinterpreting the finding when they see it. So they might find something, but they'll think it's benign when it's actually malignant. Multiple studies have identified suboptimal radiology processes that are contributor, contributors to the overwhelming number of medical errors. And this is a big cost. And you can see there that costs related to errors, medical errors, not just imaging errors, is estimated to be more than $38 billion annually. As I mentioned, overall, approximately 30% of abnormal radiology studies are missed in retrospect, and about 4% of radiology interpretations rendered by radiologists in daily practice actually contain errors in real time. And here's just one example I have in that study. 19% of lung cancers presenting as a nodule with a median diameter of 16 millimeters, so that's pretty big, it's a centimeter and a half, on chest x-rays was actually missed and the even higher rates have been reported. 25 or even 90% have been reported in the literature. When we look to breast imaging, again, misdiagnosis of breast cancer occurs in four to 30% of screening mammograms, according to multiple randomized controlled trials. Screening mammography also results in overdiagnosis in a significant number of cases, representing false positives of patients that would not have become symptomatic during their lifetime if no screening had taken place. So even though you might not miss something, you may overcall something. And again, you can classify the errors as really cognitive perceptual errors. So you miss a lung nodule on a chest x-ray or you misinterpret it and you might miss it because you're not looking at all of the information or you might not, you might look there but you might not recognize it. Or you might look there and recognize it but you might misinterpret it. And then in radiology, we have other type of errors, so system-related errors. So for example, one of the highest causes of malpractice suits is failure to communicate a finding to the ordering clinician. So you might have found it and interpreted it correctly. Maybe the patient has blood in the brain, but you didn't document that you actually spoke to the referring physician. So if we look to the past, there's that early image of Hopkins, of radiologists near the light box, and look to the future, it's possible that computers will play a more significant role in how radiologists interpret and manage the data. So the idea of artificial intelligence is in use in medicine is actually not new. Artificial intelligence is over 70 years old, and early clinical decision support systems have actually been around since the 1970s. And there you can see some of the early systems that were clinical decision support aids that really never took off and never were in common use. So if you look at the one called AA Felp, that was a, the first computerized clinical decision support system around 1972 in the UK. And what the computer did is it calculated the likely cause of acute abdominal pain based on patient symptoms. So they would feed the symptoms 
feed the symptoms into the computer and it would try to classify what was the cause of the patient's acute abdominal pain. In 1974, the system was doing well and was actually more accurate than the junior doctors at the hospital and almost as accurate as the most senior consultants who obviously had more experience. But it took overnight to give the diagnosis, which is probably a little long when you're dealing with an acute abdomen. So here's an example of that, and you can see from 1972, and they had seven possible diagnoses from of acute abdominal pain, and they would input the signs and symptoms, and then it would give the probability of diagnosis. And it was pretty accurate, especially for the day, and again, with limited computer power. And to me, the rationale behind it was actually very similar to how the IBM Watson computer works today. So it gets the clinical information in there, and then it suggests what the most likely diagnosis is, and then the IBM Watson tries to pair that up with the imaging. So if we look at artificial intelligence, it was really very slow progress for decades since those early 70s, With the focus was really on simple problems. And what we've seen, especially in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, was very simple problems, such as voice recognition or image recognition, simple image recognition. So why all of a sudden was there a sudden leap in progress? And that was about five years ago, and what happened is the computers got much better. And if you look at this chart, there's a data set called ImageNet. And what that is, is an image database organized according to the WorldNet hierarchy. So it's nouns. So this might be a database that has 10,000 images of cats, and they're all called cat, 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 cat. So you can use that, and you can train the computers to try to identify a cat versus a dog. And so you can use this to train the computers and see how good the computers can be. And so you can see there from 2011 to 2017, the progress that was made during that time. And if you look at the red dash line, that's the human performance, because even humans aren't perfect when you're trying to identify images such as cats. But you can see the progress that the computers have made that in 2016 and 2017, actually the computers were outperforming humans in the simple image recognition. So advances in machine learning along with the development of these deep learning algorithms, um, so you have machine learning and deep learning, and I'll, I'll describe what the difference is between those in a minute, but deep learning is loosely based on how our brains work. So we had advancements in computer capacity and also in computer hardware, and probably one of the big one was the NVIDIA uh, DGX1, and now they have HGX2. Okay, so these are really, really powerful computers that are designed in a different way that really help facilitate machine learning and deep learning. And then the development of interface software, which makes it easier to put this technology in the hands of non-computer scientists. So you can go online, you can get the data set, and you can download software that will help you do this uh, analysis and develop these algorithms. So it's so much more easy for people um, to work in this space without being a computer scientist. And that's where the magic happens, right? So you have the computers and you have the data and then you make the software available. And then of course we have the accessibility of huge amounts of data thanks to the internet. So artificial intelligence is everywhere and the enthusiasm and commitment to artificial intelligence is growing. A lot of companies are investing in artificial intelligence. As you can see there in 2016, over $5 billion in funding went to startup companies working in this space. Uh, Ford and Samsung, 
each committed over $1 billion to artificial intelligence, R&D, and acquisitions. And it's estimated that the global revenue for artificial intelligence is going to be $36 billion by the year 2025. So it's clear that artificial intelligence and these types of algorithms are disrupting industries such as transportation and manufacturing, and now people are trying to apply it to healthcare because medical imaging is advancing at an incredible rate and is very expensive. You know, healthcare costs are the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States, and a lot of healthcare costs is related to medical imaging because it's very expensive. And also artificial intelligence, if you're going to apply it to healthcare, it makes sense to apply it to medical imaging because medical imaging is expensive, but also there's a huge amount of data that's digitized, right? So we, we no longer have film, so we already have it in a digital format. And you can see there that healthcare imaging is a $60 billion market. So machine learning is... Uh, really a broad classification of these statistical algorithms that can improve over time. So they're built on models. In other words, the computer program's performance improves automatically with experience. And so the goal of these algorithms is to get a model that fits the data that will improve over time as it analyzes the data. And once the model is known and you have the data, you can use it to predict new data. So you train it, and then you feed it new information, and then it should learn over time and get better over time. So what's the difference between artificial intelligence versus machine learning versus deep learning? And I'm going to explain this in a way that your average radiologist can understand, and somebody like me can understand, because I'm not a computer scientist. So artificial intelligence is a broader category, and machine learning is a subcategory, and then you have deep learning, which is a category of machine learning. So the broad sense of artificial intelligence is a technology that enables us to perform a specific task as well as, or better than humans, based on specific set of instructions. So when I think of this, I think of chess. So even when I was a kid, we had a computerized chess game that you could play against the computer. And the computer was trained with a specific set of instructions. If I made this move, the computer made that move. The computer didn't learn over time. It would always make the same move based on the how it was trained. So even if I, I played the computer hundreds of times, it's always going to play the same way. It's not learning over time. Machine learning is a, an approach to doing artificial intelligence. And this is where you use these algorithms and you can the computer can learn over time. So instead of giving a specific set of instructions, every instruction that you could possibly think of, the machine is trained using a large amount of data and the algorithms, and it can learn over time. So this is similar to a spam folder, right? So you get an email, and you say it's junk mail or it's spam. The next time you get an email that's a little bit like that, at least in my email in Outlook, it will say that it thinks it's spam, okay? It doesn't have to get the exact same email, right? It just gets has to learn over time what spam emails look like. And so it's constantly getting better over time. So it doesn't have to see the exact same thing to know, hey, this is enough like the other one that I'm going to suggest that it's spam. 
And then deep learning is really a technique for implementing the machine learning and it was inspired by the way our brains work and it's based on huge neural network networks designed in layers and this is where it really can learn over time and so I would say this is like a driverless car right you can't program the car for every possible decision it would need to make what you do is you program the car and then it learns over time right it can't you can't possibly teach a car what every single person looks like because we look different I look different in the winter than I do in the summer because I'm dressed differently it would look different if I'm holding an umbrella and everybody looks different in night or day based on the, you know, the, um, the sunlight and the surroundings. So you can't teach like you would teach the chest in the chest in the early days. You have to use these powerful networks so it can learn over time with experience. So the goal of machine learning is really to develop a mathematical model that fits the data. So it starts with inputs and outputs. So, for example, if you're trying to teach the computer using ImageNet to identify animals in images, the, so you give it the input, you train it with images of dogs, and then you test it with a new image and see if it can identify a dog. So, for example, you could train it to learn what a penguin looks like. So, let's say you feed it all this information, you say penguin, 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 so it learns what a penguin looks like. So, the input would be penguin, and then um, you test it. So then you show it a picture of a dog and it will come back not a penguin because it has learned what a penguin looks like. So this is from one of those early articles, so the same thing. So if you trained it on what a dog looks like and you gave them this input on the left, it says it's 92% sure it's a dog. So it's doing pretty well, but it still thinks it's possible 7% chance it's a wolf. Or I don't know why it's a 0.01% it's a horse because um, it's obviously not a horse, but that's the the theory behind it. In this case they had taught the computer to recognize cats and then they gave them this input which is clearly not a cat but the computer really had a hard time with it because it has enough similarities to a cat. So the computer thought it was really a cat and it thought it was 10% it was a lion and 5% it was a leopard and 2% it was a cheetah. But if you trained it more and more over time the computer does better with the same input. So machine learning algorithms get really complicated and you have the input and the output and in between there's this hidden layer and it can be very simple in the classic model or when you use deep learning algorithms it can get very very complicated on how the neural networks are set up and it can even be in three dimensions. There's different types of data so when you're trying to train a network you can have supervised and unsupervised data. So supervised data is label annotated data before you train the computer and the labels are the ground truth. So it needs a large amount of well-labeled images. So you might take all these images of cats and then you might have somebody trace the cat. So you're actually saying this is the cat. You can have unsupervised data which is totally unlabeled data and you just feed it in there and hope that you can get labels that will organize the data. So you need even more data for that. Or semi-supervised data would be a blend of that, or weekly supervised data. So maybe we could have all those cats and we wouldn't trace where the cat is, we would just label it cat, cat, cat. So obviously the quality and the quantity of the data is the key when you're working in this space. Pattern recognition for complex, highly dimensional images are generally trained on large data sets. But such data sets, particularly with appropriate labels, if you want that, supervised data are rare. 
To produce such data sets can be expensive and time-consuming because the labeling is difficult, and pre-processing of the image must typically be performed to provide useful inputs to the algorithms. So if you were interested in doing a project where you were trying to train the computer to recognize, let's say, breast cancer on mammograms, you would want a large data set where you had somebody circle or point out where the cancers was. So that can be very expensive and very time consuming. So if you think about it, we'll go back to the penguin analogy. So let's say, let's say I'm trying to train the computer to recognize penguins. So I'm just going to feed all these in. I'm not going to label them. I'm just going to, I mean, I'm not going to annotate and trace where the penguin is. I'm just going to feed all these images of penguins in there. And I'm going to say penguin, 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 and hopes the computer can learn what a penguin looks like. But what happens is, what if I tested on these images? So the one to the left, a child, if you showed them a pictures of a penguin, would be able to recognize a penguin, right? And a child, if you showed them a penguin wearing a sweater and you said, what is that? They would say, oh, it's a penguin wearing a sweater. Well, the computer, if you train them on images of penguins from nature, would have a lot of trouble recognize a peng penguin in a sweater because you never showed it a picture of a penguin in a sweater. And also, if you showed them a picture of a penguin near a car, it might not recognize it because you actually never showed them the penguin near a car. Or if you showed them the backside of a penguin, they may not be able, the computer might not be able to recognize it, again, because you didn't have a large enough data set. So medical images, if you go beyond images of penguins, even become more complex, right? Because the radiology image interpretation is more complex. And there's a lot of errors, as I told you. So you can't just feed the images in and feed reports in. That's not going to be enough. And so the cost to develop high-quality data sets where you would annotate the images um, and label them correctly would be very expensive and would have some legal issues, right? Because you, you need to make sure everything is um, anonymized. And how are you going to get enough? I mean, it's easy to get a million images off the Internet of penguins, but where are you going to get a minimum? a million images of pancreatic cancer. Where and how could you afford to be able to annotate and label them? So that's a good place to stop, part one. And when we come back, we'll talk about part two. And we'll talk about where the research is currently on applying artificial intelligence to medical imaging. Thank you.